girls married in childhood stands at 12 million per year. Close to 100 million girls globally are not legally protected against child marriage. In West and Central Africa alone, 1.7 million girls are forced into child marriage, one of the highest proportion globally. Hello everyone and welcome to our podcast. This is Jandi, Sophia and Valye and today we'll be discussing the intersection between child marriage and girls education. We will first give an overview of the phenomenon as a whole. Then, starting from the educational efforts of the Association Against Violence Against Women, we'll focus on the issue of child marriage in the region of North Cameroon specifically. And finally, we'll provide a critical analysis of the legal approach to child marriage as advanced by international bodies. We will do all of this while always providing an overview of how the struggle is to be placed within the feminist framework. In all regions of the developing world, it has been observed that the percentage of the girls who marry before the age of 18 do not complete their years of schooling, and that girls with secondary education are up to six times less likely to enter early marriage when compared to girls who have little or no education. Oh wow, that would mean that almost all of the people in this class would be married and with kids by now. Exactly. That is why education is so important to child marriage. It is the strongest predictor of the age a girl will marry. Girls may get married at young ages due to the lack of other alternatives such as educational or economic opportunities. But is the relationship between education and child marriage only one directional? No, on the contrary, the association between education and early marriage is likely bidirectional and deepens the problem of economic independence. What do you mean? Well, while research has identified that promotion of girls education is a key means of reducing early marriage in many contexts, it is also shown that early marriage itself may serve as a barrier to post-marriage school attendance due to early childbirth and related childcare responsibilities and restriction of school attendance by girls' husbands or in-laws. There must be something that has been done about it. Indeed, some efforts have been made in West African countries to improve education to tackle the problem of child marriage. For example, Nandingoy Girls Boarding School project in Kenya delays the age of marriage of Maasai girls by encouraging parents to promise their girls to school instead of promising them to marriage. The Campaign for Female Education International, also known as CAMFED, has been working to increase girls' education in Zimbabwe since 1993. And of course, Cameroon. Let's get into it. Wait, we know you're very passionate about it, but before going into our case study, let's just give our listeners a clear understanding of what we will mean by education throughout our podcast. Yeah, that's extremely important. Our understanding of education will not be confined to the four walls of the classroom. Rather, it is looked at as an ongoing development for the women to be able to rule out epistemic injustice and obtain basic literacy to be contributing members of society that are not dependent on a man for her practical needs Okay, now it's time for Cameroon though. Specifically, we'll be centering on the Center for Women's Lives in Marua in the extreme north region. Jambi, why don't you tell us why the situation is so exacerbated there? Well, first of all, we have to consider the age-old problem of most societies. 
Women are perceived as lesser than their male counterparts. The practice of child marriage is kept in place by a single underlying reality, patriarchy and male honor. Across Cameroon's far north region, women are considered property and men's honor is paramount. Oh, mentioning property, that reminds me of something we studied in sociology. How Levi-Strauss' theory of kingship to explain family structures is based on the fact that women are exchanged as goods. Exactly. Women really are considered commodities here. Marrying off daughters is an income generation strategy. In exchange for the girl's hand in marriage, a father receives payment, usually in the form of, let's say, livestock, cash or goods. Younger girls often fetch a higher price. Marrying off a daughter also seems also means one fewer mark to feed. And what happens with their education then? Well, it's Dubois investment for most families. Because of the prohibitive costs associated with schooling, poor families often view educating their daughters as an unbearable cost. The schooling system itself perpetuates this view. It's not uncommon for a young adolescent girl to be reprimanded by her teachers in school and asked, what are you still doing in school? You should be married by now. But are people shocked when they see such young women married? After all, in most of these cases, child marriage comes with child rearing. No, on the contrary, and which is quite scary, child marriage is completely ingrained in the region's cultural norms. The age at which girls have sexual intercourse is not considered a problem, no matter how young she is. What is frowned upon is that the intercourse takes place out of wedlock. While it is socially acceptable for a 12-year-old girl to be impregnated by her 40-year-old husband, an 18-year-old who becomes pregnant after a rape or after having consensual sex with her boyfriend is a source of shame. Chandi, earlier on you mentioned the schooling system, but we have also defined education as something much broader. Does this epistemic deficit have something to do with the cultural norms you just mentioned? You couldn't be more right, Sophia. Many parents actually think of child marriage as a religious value firmly rooted in the sacred texts of Islam, which is the dominant religion in this part of Cameroon. However, this is a clear misinterpretation of the religious texts, given that very few people in this region have enough literacy or training to read, the, or read and interpret the texts for themselves. In reality, the Quran calls for the consent of both parties in order for a marriage to be valid. That's fascinating how a local tradition is veiled as an axiomatic religious value. I imagine this all goes back to the remoteness of the region. The occurrence of child marriages and backwardness are more prevalent in the region of Marua since it's extremely isolated. Exactly. And also, why spend already scarce money on education when the daily problem of these people is to get access to basic resources such as food, you know? People are more likely to consent to child marriage because it reduces the burden of raising a girl who is also a liability by sending her off. We can really grasp how this is a big issue in the region now. But as such, aren't the laws implemented to prevent such situations from manifesting themselves over and over? That's a really good question. As a, as a matter of fact, there are. Cameroonian laws are in place to try and deal with the issue. Let's be more specific. First of all, under statutory, statutory law, Ordinance 8102, 1981, the legal age of marriage is 15 years for girls with parental permission and 18 years old for boys. Reinforcing this law in 2016, the state adopted a new penal code whose Article 356 criminalizes forced marriage. What is pertinent to our study is that if the married spouse is under the age of 18, the punishment is aggravated. It may not be less than two years of imprisonment, regardless of the mitigating circumstances. But if there is a law, why are we still discussing this issue so extensively? 
Well, Sophia, to put it bluntly, it doesn't work. First of all, because under most circumstances, it cannot be applied. Second of all, even if it were, the law still bears structural problems. What do you mean it cannot be applied? First of all, most girls lack birth certificates and national identity cards. In other words, they have no access to administrative documents. What is the result of this? Women are not legal entities. As far as the Cameroon government is concerned, these girls do not exist. Well, that's shocking. Yes, especially because it compromises their public life. As girls are legal entities, they have no access to legal redress. The law's provision de facto proven futile. So basically, you're saying that civil society is made up of men there. But why don't women actually ever claim access to these rights? Well, despite the law being promulgated in 2016, to this day, most of the citizens of North Cameroon are simply unaware of what formally constitutes child marriage and that it is illegal. On the contrary, given the significant hold of cultural norms and religious interpretations mentioned beforehand, child marriage is promoted, bearing no negative connotations. Oh, now that you mention it, that is exactly the case of the center of women's life. Most of the cases they handle are victims of a crime no one is conscious of being such. The crimes are not committed out of civil law encroachment, but out of ignorance regarding the illegality. For instance, 12-year-old girl Amina was about to be married off as her father simply was not aware that it was committed a crime until the volunteers of the center actually told them. Yes, I couldn't think of a better example, Sophia. But how come all these people are unaware of the law they should be living under? Excellent question, Javi. The reason behind the daunting numbers is simple. Girls receive little to no education, most of them not even making it to primary school. Without going to school, they can't read the laws. We're thus talking about an illiteracy problem. Unfortunately, illiteracy is very prevalent among girls in the Maroua region. UNESCO reported in 2009 that fewer than one in four women in the province is literate. Furthermore, the problem is exacerbated by the linguistic specificity of the Maroua region. Most girls are not native French speakers, as the primary language in Cameroon's far north region is Fafude. Call me stupid, but isn't this specifically irrelevant then? Even if the laws would be written in full full day, the girls still wouldn't be able to read them because they are, at the end, illiterate, right? Well, actually, the challenges to translation should not be ignored, Jambi. In Fulfude, there is no legal vocabulary. This makes the laws alien to girls, even if they hear them by word of mouth. If there's no word for rights, how can girls understand their rights are being violated? So, to sum up, girls lack the skills that would equip them to interpret, analyze, and negotiate their external environment more effectively. Yes, and beyond the female population, the fact that laws are not known among the majority of North Cameroon citizens is based on the geographical isolation of the region. In this remote rural area, there are very few resources to implement the law. There's just no cohesive legal framework to criminalize child marriage. Thanks, Vaye, for raising these issues. However, I think even if these were to be solved, the law would still not be applicable effectively. Why do you say that? Well, because I think there's no one person to blame. Who does one blame when the parents, the husband, the priest, the teachers and the society are all equally responsible for the wrong of child marriage? It's extremely difficult to hold one person accountable for the consequences of the crime because the societal problem is so diffused. Yes, you're right. That cannot be denied. Nonetheless, that is exactly what the Article 356 of the new penal code approved in 2016 has done. Uh, that should be something to celebrate, as it finally seems to put into practice the engagement that Cameroon had endorsed to, on paper only, in 1989 by subscribing the, to the international conventions prohibiting child marriage. 
Actually, we have to be careful with that. I would argue that celebrating the article actually obscures a legal void. Under statutory law, child marriage, criminalized given the non-compliance of the minimum age parameter, only concerns girls under 15. That differs from the international formal definition where the minimum age is considered to be 18 years old. The, 2000 penal, the 2016 Penal Code states being a minor under 18 years old as an aggravating factor increasing the penalty of forced marriage. This is misleading. It makes one believe that the Cameroonian law is getting closer to follow the international guidelines and adopting the minimum age of 18. But it doesn't. Supposedly consensual marriages of girls between 15 and 18 are still not criminalized, escaping the internationally upheld age limit. Oh, I see. Thank you so much for explaining. This is particularly preoccupying given the unverifiableness of consent in very precious social contexts with both situational and relational constraints. On the other hand, it's true that exclusively following an age limit is rather formalistic, artificial harbinger of forced marriage. I love this interaction. You're indeed having a debate central to the discussion of international policymakers stacking child marriage, which dabble between two parameters, consent or the formal minimum age requirement as the most effective in avoiding child marriages. I'll make sure to bring it up later. But wait, before going international, I've heard that behind the endorsement of Article 356, there is the successful fight of the women at AFLV, the association who struggle against violence against women. The association was born in 1991, I believe, and was soon recognized both by the international community and the Cameroonian government that same year. You have it right, Janvi. Yes, it was born out of the engagement of seven Cameroonian feminists and it's recognized as a feminist, non-partisan, non-lucrative national association that aims to provide counseling, language and literacy training, economic support and empowerment for girls who have escaped an early or forced marriage or that have been abandoned to help them overcome their really bad situation. In today's podcast, we're going to focus on the North Branch, which was led by Sike Bile, right? Exactly. Sike is a Cameroonian sociologist and feminist activist, originally from southern Cameroon, that moved to Marua because she is aware of the situation of the women of Marua, who suffer extreme discrimination, isolation and violence. So together with the help of other five inspiring women, she started the branch by establishing the first women's center of the region. Wow, that's extremely inspirational, especially considering that they are facing a society with extremely traditional values. They needed to build a strong network with political, social, religious actors in order to be accepted by the community. However, from the beginning, Sike insisted for the center to be defined as openly feminist, despite the backlash that that could have originated. Am I right? Yes, you are. It is because the feminist prise de conscience mirrors many other global South women's trajectory, who realized that transforming unequal power relations between genders was not part of the revolutionary agenda of left-wing, post-independence and post-statorship parties in their home countries. So wait, does her perspective embrace many post-colonial feminist claims? Yes, but her feminist vision goes beyond that. It is based on both strategic interests and practical needs of women. What do you mean by strategic interests? According to Molino, strategic interests arise from the analysis of women's subordination and from the formulation of an alternative, that is to say, the need for transformation of societal norms and power relations. By reclaiming the strategic interests of women, Sique embraces the notion of gender equality, just like theorized by the liberal feminist tradition. And how about the practical needs? 
Well, experiencing the reality of Cameroon, CK believes that the engagement for long-term provision alone is not enough in such an impoverished context, as challenging the system may affect the practical needs in the short run and make women back down, scared for their lives and that of their children. That reminds me of the critique radical feminists do of the liberal commitments to formal equality. Is that so? Yes, though I would emphasize how the reconstructing aspect of practical needs is closer to cultural feminists. By posing a concrete case-by-case approach to women's situation, they aim to meet women's day-to-day requirements of survival. Speaking of reconstructing, how does the center actually work? So, the women of the association dedicate themselves to traditional lobbying and advocacy on a state level. However, given the complex landscape of Northern Cameroon, where overlapping government systems based on traditional and religious authorities still retain much legitimacy, the collaboration with other agents, such as religious leaders, is fundamental for the process. In fact, the aim of the association is to leave a substantive impact on those helped. And as a result, they act on a model that focuses on personal experience of each and every woman and that involves consciously raising activity and giving the woman the tools to decide for herself. This means that social workers and psychologists are assigned to a woman and follow her throughout her whole case. If necessary, they go to court. And I think it's interesting here to notice that it could all either mean Cameroonian justice system or the Lamidat, which is a traditional tribunal based on Islam. Seems to me that the process encompasses all areas of life to a comprehensive societal change. Education being the key word here. What fields do they focus on? So, the program that they have is called the Empowerment Program, and it is based on five main fields of action. First is legal empowerment. That means that all families and girls receive a throughout thorough orientation about girls' rights, so they are aware of the possibility, and they urge all of them to obtain national identity cards. This goes hand in hand with the political empowerment. In fact, the association conducts its own information session about political engagement and democratic processes so that women are able to vote. That's extremely important because I know for a fact that women's political representation in Cameroon is exceptionally low. Yes, Jambi, but it is much more than that. Uh, means that they are now de facto citizens and can participate in public life. Taking them out of the relegation to the private sphere is really the key to help them get back control of their sexuality, gain self-knowledge, and thus overcome social isolation. Exactly. Thank you so much, Vali, for noticing. The center is the place where most of this social empowerment takes place giving the women a new support system within which they can also work on their personal empowerment by attending French and literacy classes that focus on teaching them the words that they need to express concepts related to the law and to the issue they're facing. Many of them were not even able to read and write their name before going to the center. This is epistemic injustice we mentioned before. What about economic and social injustice? Yeah, we have seen how socialist feminism advocates for economic freedom as a fundamental step to women's emancipation. Income-generating activities give you the power to make a decision after all. Yes, girls, you will be perfect contribution for the center as they also work on women's economic empowerment, giving them the skill to enter the labor market and achieve a degree of economic independence. This is also results in the women's ability to gain control over their sexual and reproductive lives, improving their health and that of their children. So it seems like the women in the center are very busy these days. Would you say that their efforts have been successful so far? For sure, a lot of product has been made, and the daily action of the association has been profoundly changing the lives of many women on the national level in Cameroon. In fact, since its creation, the organization has increased its scope to the point that it has brought 
together a diverse group of female public officials to develop a platform called the Party of Women. By asking the women the question, they are aiming at individuating more areas where the law and the Cameroonian society are failing women. I've heard of them, Sophia, and don't forget that they have been conducting national campaigns in the hope of being able to sensibilize the whole population to the issue of education and child marriage. Exactly, Valle. Thank you so much for reminding me. Uh, they seem to have been effective as more and more people approach the association in a preventive manner. And not, I'm not just talking about the women directly involved, but also about their relatives, family and friends. Oh, that's interesting. Would you say that there has been a cultural shift for the better? Would you say that that means that there's been a cultural shift for the better? Well, to an extent, for sure. But the organization is still facing many challenges. As we have previously discussed, much of the action going on in the center will eventually provide something in return. But waiting, being patient, is not easy for many of these women who prefer the easy route, to follow a man. But we can't ignore the ambivalence that dedicating time and energy to an activity that will not immediately satisfy practical needs has for these women. Exactly, Valle. You have the grasp of it. We also have to consider that we have still strong preeminence of cultural norms rooted in societal and family structure. Most families refuse to change the traditional ideas, and that leads to women uh, having to remarry out of economic needs. Even if women were to decide to go to court, the absence of economic means on their part would prevent them to do so, as they don't have the money to sustain the transportation, the legal and civil costs of the processes. I would also argue that other than poverty and lack of resources, what makes a shift from formal to material implementation of the laws and norms impossible is the interest that political and societal elites have in maintaining the status quo. That's a really interesting remark. Now that you mention it, I remember reading that reforms of economic sustainment and accessibility of the educational system to lower classes are not really being implemented in the region. You both are more than right, girls. Those in power only benefit from the current state of affairs. Not only that, but also the National Assembly has yet to pass a law on domestic violence, a law against violence against women, and Cameroon has yet to ratify the Protocol to the African Charter of Human and People's Rights on the Rights of Women, which contains strong and detailed language on child marriage. Oh, that, that doesn't sound good. But hasn't Cameroon ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, also known as CEDO, and the African Charter on Human and People's Rights? Thanks for the question. The problem is that those conventions have yet to be incorporated into the national constitution, which means that it is difficult for even the most sympathetic of magistrates to apply them in court. In addition, the lack of legally binding power of such agreements make it possible for Cameroonian policy-making bodies to delay enacting legal changes that could have more far-reaching structural impact. But that I will leave to our wonderfully competent Valle to educate us more on that. Yes, thank you, Sophia, for getting critical with the international framework. Insofar, in our study of child marriage in Cameroon, we've assumed that the approach to child marriage of international bodies is optimal, 
and consider that the AFLV Association should mirror its guidelines, namely those found in the Sustainable Development Goals 5.3 or in the Article 16.2 of the CEDAW, Convention of the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Nevertheless, is that so? A more thorough analysis of the international guidelines allow us to observe some inconsistencies in their policies. I want to believe Hokohori, in her analysis of child marriage in Bali, emphasized the issue of the minimum age requirement. Exactly, Javi. What she points out is very insightful. Because the international child marriage framework emphasizes the minimum age parameter, the children's ability to consent, and thus the recognition of their agency, is negated. In the international framework, children's views are only heard when adults consider them as rational, consistent, and on their own. But when they work or marry, basically perform wrong actions, the concept of agency suddenly loses its significance. Falling on this protective approach is quite problematic, because it fails to walk the thin line between empowerment and protection of children. We could ask ourselves, how much can a policy that fails to involve children in the decision-making process really empower them? If I'm not wrong, this is the same critique we have seen feminists use with respect to women, which they propose to resolve by asking the woman the question, including women's voices in the decision-making process and thus avoiding their issues from escaping the legal redress. You're very right, Sophia. Applying this critique to child marriage policies, international guidelines should implement a child rights approach instead, which allows children to express their agency more greatly. Rather than alienating children from their own cases based on an artificially imposed minimum age, it prioritizes the consent parameter in the criminalization of child marriage. Nevertheless, haven't we seen in class that focusing on the consent parameter is also problematic? Yes, we all remember what McKinnon emphasizes, that consent, overvalorized by neoliberals, is not a harbinger of value in most scenarios. When there is a power imbalance between the two parties, the subordinate one's acts of counseling expresses the ability to coerce of the superordinate rather than the subordinate's legitimate will. Therefore, basing child marriages on the parameter of concern is problematic. Rather than empowering girls, it legitimates the coercion they face. In McKinnon's words, consent only acts as a magical word that legitimizes things otherwise not accepted. But then, Valle, what can we make of this tension? Given the limits of these parameters, how can we ensure that child marriage is persecuted effectively? First of all, we argue that the more measures implemented, the closer we will get to resolving the issue. Rather than prioritizing one parameter over the other, both should be sought after in the legal framing of child marriage. From the two parameters, however, consent opens the possibility of exploring more legal methods, as the nature of the minimum age requirement is rather formalistic. Oh yes, for example, cultural feminist practical reasoning seems quite appropriate as it employs a legal approach in course that is more sensitive to the context and the situation of each case. Yeah, that way it effectively accommodates the relational and situational constraints that Hokohori identifies to blur the lines between consent and coercion. Such as, for instance, the fact that a girl might marry for her parents, thus giving her consent but not expressing her true will. Exactly, girls. And following this contextual approach to each case, the Committee on the Rights of the Child has put forth the best interest of child's principle, where the voice of the child is weighted against other factors like the preservation of family relations or the protection of the child. And what in this mind would legal reform be sufficient? 
No. As Sika's own job has proven, legal reform should be accompanied by structural reform of the social and economic condition. A merely the jury change could not change alone a de facto problem. Hence, seeking for an enabling environment, including improved access to reproductive tools, poverty reduction, and equal access to basic education is of fundamental importance to reduce the daunting numbers behind child marriage. Well, with all of these approaches taking hold, even though the situation is still rather bleak, I imagine the numbers are getting better. You see, that is not really the case. What do you mean? You're forgetting we're living through a global pandemic. Sophia, how can we forget that? Okay, thank you, Jambi. When you are done mobbing me, I can tell you about the impact that the pandemic has had on girls' education and child marriage worldwide. Save the Children has warned that up to 2.5 million girls are at risk of forced marriage as an effect of the COVID-19 pandemic. With the continuum of the pandemic, the numbers cannot help but increase further. And as we have previously discussed in this podcast, poverty is a key factor when it comes to child marriage and the unexpected implementation of a lockdown has left many workers without a job, thus resulting in many pauper households that have to once again turned to child marriage as an economic mean of the alleviation. What is more, the displacement of education online has meant a complete halt to the process for many girls living in rural areas without free internet access. And the report has also estimated that many of these girls may never go back to school and have access to both intellectual and health education. Oh, I see. And if we think about the impact this can have on the future of these girls, no matter how much we complain about Zoom classes, we should really value them. But we still have access to education and that is a privilege that many girls around the world still can't claim. 